Hello and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. On today's episode, we look at M&A activity across higher education and explore reasons why these marriages of convenience are viewed very differently from mergers and acquisitions in almost any other industry. Our guests offer tips to schools looking to make acquisitions to fill gaps in their current program portfolio and to schools whose very survival may depend on finding a partner with deep pockets. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Office Hours with EAB. I'm Caitlin Maloney, a senior director on our research team, and it's great to be back on the pod. Today, I'm joined by my colleague and friend, Jackson Nell. Jackson, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Caitlin. It's great to be back with you. I feel like every time we have great conversations, so, so looking forward to another one. Yeah, and we've got a really exciting and timely topic to discuss today, consolidation in higher ed, uh, what's going on with mergers, acquisitions, closures. They've been spiking in the news lately. Prior to the pandemic, we saw big news from Purdue and the University of Arizona, both by acquiring large for-profit providers. Uh, we saw the PASHI system announce a large-scale consolidation at the system level. Um, more recently, we saw uh, Northeastern University announce that it's acquiring Mills College all the way on the other side of the country in California. So lots going on, lots to unpack. And Jackson, I know you've been following the news quite closely and leading EAB's analysis of industry consolidation. I've got a lot of questions I want to ask about that analysis, but before we get into that, can you explain what M&A looks like in higher ed? I suspect that it, it works a little different than other industries like technology, let's say. Absolutely. It does look very differently. And I know you and I have been following closely all of the deals. Uh, we keep track of everything. And, you know, every time there's a big announcement in higher ed, uh, we, we make sure to share it with each other in comments. So this is certainly, I think, a space Caitlin and I spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, so in terms of just giving kind of a, a general landscape, I think it's probably helpful to throw out a few terms uh, just to define them for, for folks online, given this isn't something that a lot of us are used to thinking about. Uh, when we refer to industry consolidation, generally what we're talking about is the shrinking in the number of distinct and independent institutions, right? And that can occur primarily through one of three ways. Uh, the first is mergers, where institutions essentially combine and pool their assets, right? Uh, the second is an acquisition, where another institution buys another or buys pieces of another. Uh, and then the third is closure, which I think we, we all know and are very afraid of, rightfully so, right? So those are kind of the, the three pathways here. And then within higher ed, I think there are kind of two flavors or two kind of extreme ends on the spectrum, right? There's the system consolidation, which is a, essentially an agency reorganization process in its extreme form. It's a, a very political, very uh, policy and, and state support uh, driven conversation. So it looks very different from a kind of pure market-based uh, kind of uh, M&A deal that we see often in the for-profit higher ed space, for example. So, so most deals within higher ed are going to fall somewhere on that spectrum, probably a little bit closer to like the agency reorganization model than that true equity-based M&A model that you see in, in other industries. But uh, that hopefully provides a little bit of landscape and color to what this looks like. It does. And I think it's worth reminding listeners, a lot of people don't realize just how big the higher ed industry in the United States mm -hmm. is. There are over 4,000 distinct uh, higher ed institutions in the U.S. alone. And that's a lot larger than other countries, far more institutions yep. per student than in Canada and the U.K., let's say, and also much larger than we see in other industries. I mean, I think like 
telecom airlines are the extreme here. But if you think about the number of institutions available to serve each and every, let's let's say, consumer in this case, um, there's quite a lot of institutions. So it, it raises valid questions from industry observers around, is it time to shrink down? Um, but of course, the industry has been this size for a long time now. What's driving increased interest in M&A as of late? Like, What are institutions looking to solve uh, through conversations right now? Yeah, a great question. And I think there's a lot of forces percolating up through our industry that are driving M&A to the forefront. I think two stand out, and they're the two that I think pretty much every university leader could could name. One is the demographic decline and stagnation, to the point that you just made, Caitlin, about there being an oversupply of institutions already. Yes, when you look at us versus our, our kind of OECD peers, that's very much true. We have more institutions per student than any other country, and that's accelerating as we think about the demographic declines that we're already starting to experiment experience and are going to experience more uh, as the the decade progresses, right? Uh, So a lot of institutions are saying we're we're oversupplied. uh, And so that is leading to some speculation that particular markets and regions need to consolidate to essentially better serve and right-size themselves to that market. So so that's the first force. I think the second is the the broader concerns about financial sustainability, particularly on the cost side. We, We know that cost growth is occurring at a faster rate than revenue growth in higher ed. And that's increasingly precarious dance that we're on. Um, and from that standpoint, I think there's an interest in using m and as a way to drive economies of scale and efficiencies, uh, to drive down those student service costs, for example, and then to allow us to kind of uh, provide a, a better uh, financial footpath for our, for our institutions. So those are the, are the two forces there. More specifically, I think on the sell and buy side, those are a little bit more nuanced. Uh, on the sell side, we are looking at institutions, generally speaking, who are, are looking for, for a, a fiscal alternative, essentially. They're looking for uh, another institution to provide a bailout via buyout, essentially. Uh, they're, they're close to insolvency or on that path to, to closure, and, and this seems to be a way to provide uh, kind of continuity of, of that institution going forward. So, so that's where we see a lot of the sell side interest. However, on the buy side, it tends to be skewed to institutions looking at, at revenue diversification and revenue growth, uh, looking to enter new markets, whether that's geographic markets or, or kind of student consumer and uh, credential markets. And so that that's a lot of the activity there. And so you can see those are, are very much asymmetric. Uh, and certainly, I think one of the reasons why higher ed M&A looks the way that it does and why the level of activity is, is rather scattered. Certainly. And a lot of the factors that you described, you know, they're not new. They're things that the industry has been grappling with for a while now, at least since the Great Recession. But of course, the events of 2020 and the the ongoing effects of the pandemic um, have amplified, I think, some of these stories in the media with the closures, the consolidations are getting a lot of probably disproportionate media attention from critics who are quick to point out the flaws in higher ed's cost model and costs being passed on to students and student debt and and, uh, those factors. What's really going on? Has M&A activity increased dramatically in the past 10, 15 years as the industry has faced these pressures? Or have we seen M&A and closures uh, throughout higher ed's history? Right. Uh, and that's a tough one to answer because, you know, there's really no central clearinghouse uh, of data uh, when it comes to the deals that are occurring. So a lot of what we have to do is kind of stitch together kind of a, a good uh, theory of the case of what's going on here based on the, the evidence and what's publicly available. It's also important to caveat that a lot of the deal activity occurs sub-institution, right? So think of 
uh, one institution's uh, school of business buying another school of business from another institution, for example. Those are very hard to track, but a, a kind of part of the conversation here that we say. But, but to your question about the level of activity, I think our best guess is that somewhere between six and seven on average deals occur each year over the last decade. Um, and so that is up about uh, double of what it was the decade prior. So speaking to some of the kind of the, the broader trends and distress that we talked about earlier, there is some evidence that M&A is, is escalating and, and accelerating uh, as a result. Um, but that being said, I think it's important to couch that number to the point that you said earlier. When we're talking about 4,000 some institutions here, M&A is touching 0.28% of those each year. So a very small amount of deal activity occurring in the grand scale of our industry. And you compare that to virtually any other, uh, it, it's kind of remarkable how small uh, the level of activity remains versus the size of the market. And I think going forward, we'll, we'll continue to see M&A accelerate, but we're not talking about huge cascades of deal activity emerging at any point. Uh, there's likely that gradual uptick, but not kind of the, the waves that I think some have forecasted. Yeah. And it, six or seven a year that you mentioned, that's um, even counting for-profits uh, institutions, right? Which brings the volume of the, the grand number of higher ed institutions in the U.S. to actually over 6,000 when you include for-profits yeah. in that pie. So six or seven a year is really quite a small level of act or low level of activity here. Right. And the for-profit space has a lot of consolidation forces in it. That that 6.7 on average refers just to the nonprofit and public space. Okay. Um, so, so that's the, the one little, the, the nuance that I would say there. But of that number, you know, 30% of that is, is system consolidation. So that that's, that's a big driver. So you can get some big spikes in some years when, you know, a particular state like Georgia, for example, says we're going to do this kind of uh, this big system-wide consolidation. And so that's a big driver and it's hard to really factor that in. So uh, some years you'll get a big spike just for that reason alone. That makes total sense. So why has the number remained relatively low despite all of the speculation and, and emerging interest? I'm, I'm kind of shocked it's as low as that as it is. Yeah, you know, I think generally, I think the activity remains relatively low because so much of higher ed's value proposition and its asset class is, is relatively unfungible um, and often intangible, right? So we think about real estate, for example, which is, is a large component of most institutions' assets. Uh, it, it's very hard to drive scale through M&A through the, the real estate deals that we see, right? Um, it, it's just very hard to control the cost curve on that side. It's really hard to drive economies of scale and revenue growth as a result around that. And there's so much value uh, unlocked in an in institution's brand and its alumni network, its like employer partnerships. Those things are hard to price, let alone hard to integrate with another institution and drive kind of the scale and uh, the added value that would occur there. And so a lot of that kind of jargon that, you know, I'm sure business deans on the line are thinking about right now and that I'm using entirely wrong doesn't necessarily apply to these uh, kind of conversations in the same way they do in private enterprise, because so much of the, the asset class is, is just hard to control uh, on that front. The other thing I would say is, is that on the, the speculation and frothiness that we see in the private uh, markets, that doesn't exist in higher ed, right? There's no individual ownership of institutions in the nonprofit and public space, right? So no one gets rich from M&A. There's no Carl Icahn and activist investor class really driving up those valuations. So the pressures are, are generally relatively weak, if non-existent at all. Um, and so from that standpoint, I think the, the incentives tend to be poorly aligned uh, and for good reason, right? I, I don't think any of us want our institutions to be kind of equitized in the same way that we see a lot of companies. We're, we're serving different missions at different constituencies. Yeah. So misaligned incentives and I'd argue 
disincentives when you look at the, right. the politics involved. Thinking I mentioned Northeastern and Mills, I just saw inside higher ed today, mm-hmm. um, had an article about their alumni and board um, suing, pushing back or some of their alums suing the board for um, that the financial circumstances didn't uh, require them to go this far as to sell the institution. You know, we saw the same thing with Sweetbriar years ago. Um, and so I'm sure just looking at some of the accounts of how uh, this unfolds with the alumni community in many instances in higher ed that might actively deter uh, higher ed leaders from going down this road. Right. And I think too, you know, if you're in the business of relationships that higher ed, it really is in, it's, it's hard to kind of disrupt those relationships and doing so has consequences. And so uh, one of the reasons why M&A doesn't, you know, accelerate is because there's all of these sticky, but important components of our business models. Sure. So not that many instances of M&A or closure every year, but you have, I think you and your team, gone back and analyzed every single M&A transaction that has been recorded in the higher ed industry since 1899. Am I getting that right? Yeah. You know, 1830 is the oldest one we have in the database, wow. uh, which is which is just extra, quite frankly. But we, we want it to, you know, be thorough, to say the least. And, and to understand it and contextualize M&A in, in the context of being a natural part of higher ed throughout its history in the U.S., um, but no, the, the, and to the point that we, we talked about earlier is, is that it's very hard to taxonomize and track the, the deals that are occurring in the industry because so many of them are submerged, very small, niche, um, and the deals that you do get are, are hard to, to, to kind of uh, sort through. So, you know, there's some good sources out there. One of them is actually Wikipedia, right? Which tells you a lot about the quality of data that we're using right now. So uh, we designed this database to really try and encompass, you know, somewhere between 95 to 99% of the deals that we felt had occurred. And so it was a very thorough exercise and we built this database that allowed us to to categorize the deal activity underway and then run some analyses on the back end to look at the financial and enrollment results to get a a better sense of what what the ROI or what, what was produced by the deals themselves. Yeah. Hat tip to you. That's quite the exhaustive effort. And I'm sure we have some data wonks on the line that would love to get more into your methodology and, and see the data. We are happy to do that if you get in touch with us. Um, but I think most of our listeners are probably more interested in what can we learn from all of this MA activity that has taken place across the past two centuries at this point, nearly. Um, can you give us some high level lessons, what you could glean from uh, your retrospective analysis? Yeah, I think we'll probably focus on the last 20 years, because if you go too far back, it's probably, you know, ancient history for most of the folks on the line. So we, we can look enough. at the, the kind of conclusions there. Um, and I think generally we, we bucketed our conclusions out of the, the analyses that we ran um, in terms of false starts, uh, areas that we expected to see activity based on kind of the, the hegemonic narrative of the day, and we didn't find it. Um, the second bucket is those real opportunity spaces where there were uh, activities uh, and pretty substantial amounts of, of market interest. And then finally, I think the, the lessons learned, things that we took away as kind of what happened ex post facto, what happened after the deal uh, from an implementation standpoint. So, so let's start with those false starts. Um, I think here, you know, the first one was, generally speaking, we don't see a lot of interest in these 
bailout via buyout deals, right? I think a lot of the narrative here is, is that, you know, these big, well-resourced schools are going to bail out, you know, some of these small and struggling institutions. And there are a handful of examples. I think of Boston University and Wheelock, for example. Uh, but generally speaking, when you look at the data, those are very rare deals. And, and it makes sense from that standpoint. I think the well-resourced institutions don't have a lot of incentives to buy, uh, you know, struggling institutions. The value proposition and the revenue proposition is very weak there. Um, and, you know, they also can achieve their growth independent of, of those institutions. So for the most part, what deals do occur there tend to be essentially real estate deals. Uh, or very particular kind of, uh, you know, mission or partnership formation. So uh, generally no appetite for bailout via buyout. Uh, the second place of false starts is I think there are a few deals of, of true equals, right? You know, I think a lot of us would expect that what's happening in the market is institutions that are very similarly oriented in terms of mission, enrollment, uh, even geographic region would be combining to, you know, take over all of the, the Catholic students in Pennsylvania, for example. That's actually something we don't see quite frequently. What we do see instead is actually highly asymmetric relationships and partnerships between uh, the buyer and the seller, essentially. Uh, they tend to be, again, to the point that we talked about earlier, seeking revenue diversification and strategic diversification. And to do so, you're not going to buy someone who looks identically like you. You want a different type of institution, different market serving forces underway. And so a, a lot of these deals tend to be uh, schools that are, you know, serving different market niches, as, as I mentioned earlier. So that's a, a big space that I think we expected to see a lot more activity, but generally found not a few, uh, not a lot of examples of institutions of similar size, composition, orientation, combining themselves. Those are really good lessons to share with, with higher ed leaders. I think we often see a lot of interest, or at least a disproportionate amount of interest from smaller, more regional institutions who are being hit hardest by some of the financial and enrollment challenges that you described. So I guess both of these apply to them most acutely, that um, not a lot of appetite for a, a larger institution to come in and buy them unless they're in a, a geographically attractive location or <laughs> have some some special programs, special real estate that, that make them attractive. Um, and then also that even if they're in an area with with lots of other smaller uh, sized institutions, they might not have the finances um, or the the value proposition to make uh, attractive merger candidates. Right, and on the other side of that too, like your very well resourced, prestigious institutions have no incentive to do this either, right? Harvard and yeah. MIT are never going to merge, right? Can you imagine how scary that would be for our industry if that happened? But it's never going to, right? If this was another market, you know, another industry, that that could be on the table for sure. But uh, th that's just not how our industry operates. From a distinct the identities, values, all of the other things that are at play, there's a lot more rivalries and kind of I think submerged uh, uh, structures in our industry than are often appreciated. Yeah, ranking selectivity, absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, what about real opportunities? So I hate focusing just on squashing dreams and saying where <laughs> there's no real movement. We're where are the opportunities for institutions that are interested in growing or uh, gaining scale? Right. Well, one, I don't know. The, the first one is one that I don't know many institutions actually want to be a space of opportunity, but that is system consolidation. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I think for a lot of the publics here, in particular, I think of the folks in Pennsylvania right now, this is a very difficult process. And it, it is really driven from the top down and the, the state legislature and the governance structure of a particular system. But this is a space that we see more and more states exploring. And over the last decade has certainly accelerated. Um, it is very cyclical in the sense that 
it tends to follow recessions or fiscal crunches from from a state mm-hmm. uh, budgeting mm-hmm. standpoint. So uh, these conversations often start and then stop and then are re- uh, started later if the politics have changed or the finances have changed. Uh, but this seems to be a space going forward where we expect there to be more activity, just given the kind of increasing polarization around higher ed and the desire to kind of bring down or at least uh, control state funding and support going forward. So uh, that's a space that I think you'll you'll tend to see activity. The other is, I think, in buying your way into new markets. Uh, we talked about this earlier. From a buy side, there's a lot of interest instead of building your own adult and grad offering, for example, potentially buying someone who already ha- has that essentially, or you know, niche uh, accreditations or niche uh, infrastructure and uh uh, programs that we see a lot of folks doing, for example, in nursing school, the, those are tend to be things that folks uh, may want to buy to build out their portfolio or access the new market instead of starting from scratch to do so. So that continues to remain a very fruitful one. And relatedly, actually, is uh, some interest in buying for-profit institutions. And again, this isn't for everyone by any means, but we've actually seen several high-profile deals here in recent memory. Purdue Kaplan is, of course, the, I think the most famous of this, um, where you know institutions looking to grow big in the adult and grad space are looking for a lower-cost uh, instruction model, and that tends to be or at least perceived to be in the, in the for-profit space. There was also a desire to access their, their distribution and their marketing uh, networks and to drive those student acquisition costs down. And so, so that seems to be a driver to turn to the for-profits for some institutions to, to access new markets or, or to really position yourself for, for big scale there. Right. I was going to say, and since it's like Purdue Kaplan, it, there are kind of two of those opportunities you highlighted. It's for-profits as acquisition targets, but mm. the end goal was to buy their way into the adult and online market. Um, just by buying the institution, getting all of those students, um, the marketing, the assets, were able to reach so many more students much more quickly than trying to build their right. own house. In-house. Exactly. And especially given how consolidated already the adult and grad space is, particularly in the online environment, it's very hard to go it alone and, and do it in kind of a piecemeal or stepwise fashion. And so they really had to accelerate. And I think that was the solution. And then you saw U of A and Ashford basically copy that. Um, and so uh, there probably could be potential opportunities for, for other large providers there. But I still think that that's a rather niche and small market for most institutions. That makes total sense. And we've done a lot of research on the growing concentration in the adult uh, education mm-hmm. market. We can link to in the show notes for those that are interested. Well, let's talk about lessons learned. So we we know where yeah. the opportunities are and where they're not. What would, if you were to speak in the voice of presidents or, or folks that have uh, led some of these efforts on campuses that have gone through this, what are the lessons learned? Yeah, I, I think the first one is, you know, there's kind of this misconception in higher ed that these deals are essentially free sometimes, right? Like no one pays much for some of the the, the deals between you know merging institutions, for example. But what tends to happen is there, there's a very large uh, implementation cost burden that's carried here. Uh, you know everything on the front end of doing the due diligence, going through, uh, you know hiring consultants, lawyers, auditors, all of those things. Is, is expensive. To doing, I think, most uh, expensively is actually the tech implementation, the integration of staff and faculty and, and processes. Uh, you know this better than I do, Caitlin, just how cumbersome that is to do, even within a single institution, let alone two, that often may be in an adversal relationship between their, their faculty bodies or staff bodies, for example. So uh, those tend to really prolong, I think, the value return of a lot of MNAs, uh, if not erode it fundamentally. 
Uh, so we've heard, you know, of multiple examples of where M&As were executed, you know, over a decade ago and still really haven't been fully integrated yet. Um, and that speaks to, I think, some of the, those big challenges that occur there. Um, and relatedly, I think that the kind of second lesson learned here is, is that the financial and enrollment results of the deals that have been executed on so far tend to be rather weak. System consolidation, for example, I mean, the, the cost savings uh, have been historically uh, insignificant when you look at the grand scale, partly because a lot of those system consolidations actually haven't closed campuses. Uh, they may have consolidated backend administrative and leadership structures, but they still have kept the large real estate uh, and the large staff portfolios for political reasons and others. Um, and that is, has tended to really erode some of the cost savings that could have been achieved there. And on the revenue standpoint, you know, th there's not a fundamental change in a lot of these deals to the value proposition for students. And so, you know, there's nothing that's really driving kind of a transformational opportunity for, for enrollment growth in most cases. And so that tends to be something that we see as kind of a, on the downside. The other thing is, is a lot of these deals carry large debt loads. There's a lot of liabilities. There's solving deferred maintenance backlogs. There's all of the things that kind of are associated with kind of pooling two institutions, often two institutions that may not be fully thriving in the first place that are going to erode and eat at some of the ROI there and potentially uh, worsen the deal. There are some exceptions, but generally speaking, that has held up uh, in our analysis. And then finally, when we think about these kind of existential threats that higher ed is facing today, everything from the student debt crisis to uh, you know, controlling the long-term cost growth that we see, everything doesn't seem to be kind of a standalone solve to many of these, if not kind of counterproductive to them. I think about student debt and access, for example, and the, the data suggests that following M&A activity, you actually see tuition prices and student fee prices rise 5 to 7% post-deal. So rather than controlling or plateauing costs for students, they, they can actually leave to an uptick, partly to cover those implementation costs. And so uh, as we looked at this and we thought through all of the kind of challenges our institutions are facing, for the most part, M&A is not going to be a standalone solve. It can be part of a broader portfolio for some institutions of solutions, but, but generally speaking, uh, it, it's secondary at best. Uh, to, to the, the threats of today. So I think those are the three core lessons learned. There's many others, but those stand out to me. Yeah. In a nutshell, lessons learned is this is hard. It's complicated. Yep. Um, and it sounds like the institutions that are most successful are pursuing it with a really clear strategic goal in mind, not just looking for a life raft or raft. Um, or, or a bailout here, really thinking about how they can use a merger and acquisition to expand their service to students, advance their mission, expand their market share in certain capacities. I did want to touch on, in addition to M&A, uh, closure. Uh, you mentioned yeah. at the beginning, another form of consolidation or way consolidation happens in the higher ed industry. Heard a lot of buzz and scary predictions about mass mm -hmm. closures. Um, in recent years here. What's happening there? Did we see a major uptick in closures because of the COVID-19 pandemic as some initially predicted? Yeah, uh, this is a tough question too, in the sense that closures are, are hard to, to kind of capture as well. And, you know, a lot of the activity here is, is not tracked coherently, but I think our best guess is this, which is in, in the last decade, there was a slight uptick in closures. Yeah, we're talking, you know, about 10.6 or so nonprofits on average closing each year. So, so that's a scary number for sure. But when you look at all of the closures uh, generally occurring in higher ed, about 75% so far have been the for-profits. So th these are not institutions that look like most of our partners by any means. And even within the schools that have closed in the nonprofit category, most of these tend to be very small, 
uh, and kind of uh, specific players that don't look at, like a traditional regional comprehensive institution. Um, so in some sense, that's that's a bit reassuring. But going forward, I think it's very much likely that number will continue to uptick. Again, I don't see it going, you know, uh, to a point where you're getting dozens and dozens of schools closing each year. You know, demographics aside, I think generally it will still stay you know, north of 10, but not close to 50, right, is probably the, the best guess that we have on that front. Um, and, you know, this past year, to your point about COVID, I think many of us last spring, when we were thinking about the liquidity shocks that were occurring across higher ed, the, the fear that the, the fall semester would essentially result in zero auxiliary revenue for some institutions. There was a lot of fear that, you know, we could see hundreds of schools essentially go into insolvency and close. Um, but we didn't see that at all. In fact, last year's data uh, was actually at the baseline closure pre-COVID. Uh, we didn't see a big uptick and see a noticeable spike. I think a large part of that is something that you and I, Caitlin, spend most of our, our last year and a half talking about, which is the Higher Education Emergency Relief Fund, which really helped solve some of the liquidity challenges for institutions. And for some of the smaller schools, the ones probably most exposed to closure, there was also the Paycheck Protection Program last spring that helped keep the lights on for a lot of them. Uh, I think the fear, though, is is that we're going to see closure spike in the in the recent years because as that you know federal stimulus kind of wears off that sugar rush, so to speak, uh, you have a lot of institutions that have been essentially zombified where they they don't have a path to growth, but they have been able to kind of keep the lights on financially at least. Um, and once the kind of market resets in, they they might not be able to find a pathway uh, forward anymore. Okay, got it. And we've talked a lot about mergers, talked a lot about closures, mergers, hard, maybe not opportunities for every institution. So we look across the next decade and see these financial headwinds that, that schools will be facing. Are there alternatives to closure or mergers that schools that are struggling to scale costs or services can consider? Definitely. And there's there's a whole playbook that EAB has here on enrollment sides on the, on the cost side. But I think one thing that's often underappreciated is the interinstitutional partnerships, the various kind of flavors that exist for institutions to achieve, I think, many of the same goals that MA is designed to achieve, right? Cost scalability, revenue diversification, revenue growth uh, through the, these forms of partnerships. And there's a, a, quite a spectrum here. I think most of us are probably familiar with consortia. These are kind of the back end procurement, administrative focused uh, services. But what we're starting to see is really a lot of emergence of, of new types of partnerships in the middle between MA and consortia that we call strategic alliances. Uh, which are much more embedded and integrated uh, collaborations between institutions on revenue generation often or on student insensitive services. Um, and so that ranges from everything from the colleges of the Fenway in Boston, who basically yeah. share a lot of student support services, to TCS Education System, which is collaborating on emissions and marketing. Uh, there's a lot of, I think, potential and fruit in those areas. And so we already see a big uptick, and I think schools exploring that space. Mm -hmm. And in addition, we talk a lot about scaling costs and making the financial model work. But I know schools like the colleges of the Fenway say that it makes them more attractive to their students right. too. They're in Boston, they've got Northeastern, BU, BC down the road. By collaborating these five smaller institutions, they're able to have bigger and better music programs, athletic teams, mm -hmm. theaters, all the, the amenities and extracurriculars that a lot of students are looking for um, as it comes to the student experience. Jackson, I know we um, are nearly at the end of our time together. I'd love to end just by asking, what advice do you have for anyone exploring M&A at, at a higher ed institution? 
Yeah, I think for everyone, it's a point that we talked about earlier is really leading with student value creation. I think often M&A deals become all about institutional success, which is an important goal, right? But really thinking about what value is created in the deal or partnership for students that's going to better position yourself from an enrollment standpoint, I think is essential. And it's one that's often hard to kind of think through if you're talking about how do we build shared you know, benefit services? You know, going back to the student is the best thing we can say there and having a very clear investment thesis tied to it. I think the second for our buy side or excuse me, our sell side institutions, it's really to start this dance earlier than many may think. You know, I think there's often a hesitancy to, to kind of admit that closure is in our future and we always want to fight on as institutions. But if you really feel that M&A is part of your list of strategic alternatives or a pathway that your institution may explore, you really need to have those conversations earlier than you, you may feel comfortable. Often three to five years before the point of closure is the way to best position your institution to think about how you can make yourself an attractive partner uh, for uh, for another institution and avoid potentially taking on higher debt loads, uh, You know, letting some of your deferred maintenance and other challenges exacerbate that will make you less attractive from a, from a, a buy side standpoint. I think for our buy side institutions, it's really not being too opportunistic. Uh, I think a lot of folks sometimes, you know, have told us, oh, look at all the schools that are going to close and look at what we can buy. I, the strategic clarity to me is not always there, right? I think it's it's often a good check on folks to say, why would a, a very successful institution or a thriving institution right now explore M&A? It often can lead to a strategic quagmire or distraction. So really being, I think, gut checking the value proposition from the buy standpoint is, is important and not getting opportunistic as deals kind of surface or as folks reach out to you. And then finally, for everyone, really weigh the, the, those alternatives to M&A when it comes to those interinstitutional partnerships. These often allow schools to provide kind of a, a sandbox to play in the kind of collaborations with another institution to test value propositions. And then again, achieve a lot of the similar goals that you would want in an M&A through, through greater scale. So uh, those, I think, are the great uh, core pieces that I would say. Of course, there's a lot we could add on that, but uh, those stand out to me. Jackson, this is a fascinating space. I think every single MA uh, activity or closure that we see bears its own set of lessons to learn, um, new opportunities to explore. So we will certainly be monitoring this space further going forward. But until then, it's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Um, and we thank everybody for listening and hope to speak with you again soon. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. Be sure to join us next week when we examine ways to blend the best aspects of virtual and traditional in-person engagement activities to boost yield. Until then, thank you for your time.